I'm Alec Lace. Welcome to First Class Fatherhood. Welcome, everybody, to episode 474 of the podcast. I am happy, as always, to be here with you. Thank you for stopping by. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, please get over there and bang that subscribe button. You do not want to miss all the action coming your way right here on First Class Fatherhood. All right, dads, I've got an incredible guest for you guys today. Jesse Barrett joins me on the podcast. Jesse's wife, Amy Coney Barrett, was sworn in as just the fifth woman in United States history to become a Supreme Court justice. Jesse and Amy have seven children, and their family was covered and talked about extensively throughout Amy's Supreme Court hearing. I think no matter what side of the political aisle you're on, it is hard not to have come away from that impressed with the Barrett family. But for as much dirt that was dished on them, no one had an exclusive interview with Jesse Barrett to understand what it's like to raise seven children, two of which are adopted and one with Down syndrome, uh, while being a successful lawyer, married to a woman who is a Supreme Court justice. I've got the honor of bringing you this exclusive in-depth interview with the first class father himself. Jesse Barrett will be here with me in just a few minutes, so please stick around for the interview. And today's interview with Jesse Barrett was recorded on video and is available for you guys to watch on my YouTube channel. So if you'd like to watch the conversation between the attorney and myself, please get over and hit me with a subscribe, First Class Fatherhood on YouTube. The link is in the description of today's podcast episode. And I'll tell you what, guys, I often get a double take myself when I tell people that I have four kids. I can only imagine the looks that Jesse gets when he tells people he's got seven. Uh, I've had quite a few dads on the podcast here that have large families, including NFL Hall of Famer Kurt Warner, who stopped by the podcast twice here. He's got seven kids as well. Adam Busby, the dad of TLC's Outdaughter, has six kids, uh, which include a set of quintuplets. Bubba Page from Fun Cheaper Free is a dad of eight. John Goslin, a dad of eight as well. I really love it to see dads raising big families. I think somewhere along the timeline of our country here, uh, we went from a society which always had big families and lived in smaller places uh, to what seems like now people are having much smaller families and living in bigger places. My mom was one of eight. My dad was one of six. I myself am one of seven. Uh, So if you're a dad out there raising a large family, God bless you. My hat's off to you. I think that's so awesome. Make sure you guys are following me on Instagram at Alec underscore Lace uh, to find out all the upcoming guest announcements. I got some big ones coming your way soon. If you guys are enjoying the podcast, please send me with that rating and review. Goes a long way to help me out. And as always, guys, please help me spread the word about the podcast. Every father in your neighborhood or in your contact list, let them know about the show that's here celebrating fatherhood and family life. Fatherhood rocks. Family values rule, and every day is Father's Day right here with me. And I'm going to be right back with Jesse Barrett. I'm Alec Lace, and you're listening to First Class Fatherhood. The Devil's Hand by Jack Carr is now available wherever books are sold. The Devil's Hand, which is the fourth thriller in the Terminalist series, follows former Navy SEAL James Reese as he is entrusted with a top-secret CIA mission of retribution 20 years in the making. Publishers Weekly says, Carr delivers engrossing backstory, incorporates current events seamlessly, and never flinches from breathless depictions of violence. Booklist states, Carr continues to draw from his own experiences as a SEAL to give the story a level of realism that writers who've not actually served sometimes have a hard time achieving. The Real Book Spy says The Terminalist is widely regarded as one of the best debut thrillers of all time, and rightfully so, but The Devil's Hand is even better and should go down as one of the best books in the genre, period. New York Times bestselling author Brad Thor says, So powerful, so pulse-pounding, so well-written. Let's go, dads. Grab your copy today wherever books are sold. The Devil's Hand by Jack Carr, available now. And don't miss my interview with Navy SEAL and New York Times bestselling author Jack Carr right here on First Class Fatherhood. 
Joining me now, First Class Father, Jesse Barrett. Welcome to First Class Fatherhood. Thank you. I'm not sure I qualify as a First Class Father, but glad to be here. Well, that's what you are on this show. So let's start it right here. How many kids do you have and how old are they? So I have seven. The eldest is 19 and the youngest is nine. And uh, they all fall in the middle. I have four girls and three boys. Yeah, it, that, that's incredible, Jesse. What, what is like the most uh, popular sports? Are they all into their own different sports or do they have one that they all kind of cling to? What does the sports programs look like over there? You know, sadly, uh, my biological kids got my talents, so they're not super strong at sports. Uh, it turns out that uh, two of ours who are adopted are a little more athletic than our biological ones. But, you know, we do. We have soccer. We have one who's into some CrossFit training. We have a couple who do track. Uh, some who stumble through tennis. So, you know, we just try to expose them to as many sports as we can. And then if they gravitate to them, that's great. And if they don't, you know, at least they know how to hold a tennis racket when they're adults. <laughs> yeah, very cool. If you could, Jesse, please just take a minute here to hit my listeners with a little bit about your background and what you do. Uh, so I'm an attorney at a law firm in South Bend, Indiana called South Bank Legal. Uh, I went to law school where I met my wife and I clerked for a federal judge for a year and then worked at a couple national law firms and spent the bulk of my career as a federal prosecutor at the U.S. Attorney's Office in South Bend. So uh, I've been an attorney for about 20 years in the last three or so in private practice. Yeah, really good stuff. And obviously your family got thrust into the spotlight here. Your wife became a Supreme Court justice. And as I was learning about her, as the rest of the country was, I was just so impressed. I said, man, this is the, the all-American family here. And, and you you have like the fatherhood Olympics going on. Right now. So <laughs> I said, I got to reach out. So take us back to the beginning here, Jesse, about, about how old were you when you first became a dad and how did becoming a father kind of change your perspective on life? So our eldest daughter was born when I was 27, after we had been married for two years. And, you know, I, I, like I assume any father will say, you know, second to our marriage, it was the most life-changing emotional event we've had. I remember very specifically waking up the morning after our daughter was born. It had been a, a, sort of a traumatic delivery. And you know how when you wake up, you're still a little bit groggy, you're trying to place where you are. And, and it came together and I realized, oh my gosh, we have this daughter, this Emma is her name. And I just remember the emotional reaction I had when I remembered that I was waking up not to having a wife, but to having a wife and a daughter and a family. Um, so, you know, it just, your heart just gets bigger. You have more love. Um, we, I had a similar experience with uh, my son, JP, who was adopted from Haiti after the Haitian earthquake. And uh, it was a very... Uh, mad dash to get him after the earthquake happened and he had never met me and I was in this airplane with him flying back from Florida uh, to South Bend and he had just had this traumatic event you know his orphanage the walls had fallen down he'd been sleeping outside under a tent with guard dogs to protect him in Haiti he'd been hustled onto a military plane there hadn't been anyone to explain to him what was happening he didn't speak English he only spoke Creole um, and so he's just gone through this life altering, uh, amazing set of circumstances at age almost three. And I remember being on the airplane with him flying home and just he fell asleep on my lap and just sitting there looking out the window it was nighttime, looking at the stars and just thinking what an amazing circumstance it is for this child um, and what a privilege it is that, you know, I get to now be his dad and just the 
you know, the amazing circumstances and turn of events and, and chain of events that had led to him being on my lap on the way to South Bend, Indiana. Um, and just, you know, the love I had for him and the gratitude I had that, you know, through whatever misfortune, you know, he got stuck with me as his dad and how I just wanted to do the best I could at it. Well, yeah, yeah, a great story, Jesse. And obviously he's very blessed to have you as a dad. And I, I, I know several people who have adopted and I think it's just the greatest form of love that a parent can have. I think it's so inspirational to see parents who do adoption. Now, what, what kind of led you uh, down the path of adoption in the first place, um, adopting your daughter, I believe, first? And then what was kind of, well, obviously you just explained it was a, a pretty different circumstance there. But what was the process like for you and why did you guys decide uh, to go the route of adoption uh, first time around? Yeah, you know, it's a good question, Alec. When I look back on it, we didn't set out with some grand plan to adopt from a third world country. Just, you know, we both of us wanted, I was raised as an only child of a single parent. I always wanted more kids around. My wife is the eldest of seven. She wanted a big family. And, you know, we started having babies. And then we said, well, you know, look, we've got, we have the means, we have the ability, we have a, a family life that we could welcome more kids into. So maybe we should talk about adoption. And we knew some friends who had done it. And then, you know, Haiti was, um, it wasn't that we set out to specifically adopt from Haiti, but as we started looking at countries, Haiti was close. It was not a difficult country to adopt from when we started the process. And it's the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. So we thought, well, if we're going to, you know, welcome a child into our family, why not welcome a child who's coming from a circumstance where they really need it? Um, and, you know, it was a different circumstance with our eldest daughter, uh, adopted daughter, Vivian, who's 17. The process was much, much smoother and quicker for her. But even with her, you know, she was abandoned at the doorstep of a hospital in Port-au-Prince in the poorest slum in Port-au-Prince. She was taken into the orphanage. Um, she was fed by basically a modified kind of like a hamster bottle that you'd use to feed a small pet because she just didn't have um, she was so malnourished and premature. She didn't have the ability to, to suck on a regular bottle uh, when we went to visit her. Um, when she was about a year old uh, child, while we were in the orphanage, one of the children in the orphanage had died. And we honestly weren't sure if she was going to survive un until the adoption was complete. So it was really, uh, the process wasn't as long as sometimes international adoptions are, but it was really an emotionally wrenching process. Um, at, the, at the time, my wife was pregnant with our second biological daughter, and our oldest biological daughter would pray for Haiti baby and tummy baby, you know, so she kind of became a part of our family, and even before uh, she arrived. So she came at 14 months, uh, and she only weighed about six pounds. She was in infant clothes, um, you know, and she miraculously became a healthy, thriving toddler and then, you know, grade school age child. And so we decided sort of on the same rationale, um, we'd look, we'd, we'd be open to having more kids. Why not adopt again? And if we're going to adopt again, you know, we've done Haiti before, why not do it again? But by that point, um, the international adoption process had gotten a lot more complicated, both in Haiti and internationally. So the process with our son, John Peter, took uh, for over three years. And we, it, it reached a point where it looked like it wasn't going to happen. So we were just about ready to kind of hang up the spikes and say that this, this adoption is not going to work because of this, some bureaucratic hurdles. And then the devastating earthquake in Haiti happened. And uh, we got a call three or four days after the earthquake um, 
on the same day, we discovered that my wife was pregnant with our fourth biological child on the very same day, saying, your son, John Peters, orphanage is going to be fast-tracked on this um, sort of emergency program, and you need to be in Florida in one or two days. We'll let you know to pick him up. And, you know, so we went from having four children and thinking we might be done to in several hours thinking we're going to have six children. And, oh, by the way, the sixth child is doesn't speak English. We've never met him, um, and he's just lived through this horrific circumstance. And there was a moment when we had to decide, well, you know, we, we could back out of this. Um, we didn't sign any papers that, you know, require us to adopt. And, you know, we just we looked at each other and, you know, that we just couldn't do that. You know, we couldn't, um, you know, I, I don't know how good of parents we're going to be to him, but we can't just abandon him, you know, after this horrific situation. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, a couple of days later, I flew to, flew to Florida and picked him up um, and brought brought this scared little boy who didn't speak English into our family. Uh, and we didn't speak Creole. So the, the first months were interesting. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible, Jesse. And, you know, one of the things I talk about on my show all the time is the fatherless crisis that we have going on in our country. We got so many kids that are growing up, growing up without a father or a father figure in their life. And I think that's leading to the most of the destruction we're seeing in our society here is the fact that there's a lack of, of fathers, let alone parenting in, in our country. So it's, it's so inspiring to see um, taking on children that aren't your own and making them your own. I, I, I think it's beautiful. And, and also, too, I know now that you have a um, you have a child with, with special needs requirements as well. And so what what walk me through that a little bit. When did you guys find out? Was it during your wife's pregnancy that you found out? And what, what have been some of the challenges of raising a child with special needs? Uh, you know, so our youngest son, Benjamin, who just turned nine, he has Down syndrome. Um, we learned uh, about a day after birth that he had Down syndrome. So it was, he's our seventh. Um, at the time he was born, our uh, next eldest was, I don't know, she must have run maybe five or six. So he was definitely at the tail end. And we were thinking, you know, we've got two jobs, six kids, we got a full life, you know, this baby's got to just hop on board and, you know, kind of ride the train with the rest of them, because we can't slow our life down. And uh, he was born with down syndrome as we learned and he was in the NICU for 10 days and it, it's a scary diagnosis because you know there's a lot of misconceptions about down syndrome and a lot of the data on down syndrome children comes from time a time in history when they were institutionalized or they weren't they didn't have the care that they get now and so you kind of don't know what you're walking into and it, it was scary um but you know we he's our child. And so it wasn't, it wasn't so much about him. It was more about us is about adjusting our expectations. You know, everybody thinks their child's going to be happy and healthy and, you know, uh, a first class child, you know, like a first class father and, um, just adjusting your expectations. No, our expectations for this child are going to be different. And he's, we're going to have to change our family to accommodate him. Um, and it's not his fault. I mean, he didn't, you know, put us in this position. It's something that we have to do for him. So it, you know, the first years were difficult, you know, like many Down syndrome children, he's on, he was on oxygen, he had to wear a helmet to shape his head, lots of therapy, um, you know, couldn't walk without supports. And just the process was delayed, all of the developmental gains. And still at nine, he's mostly nonverbal, um, but he's made great strides. He's, he's potty trained, he goes to school, he understands a lot, he can work a computer really well. Um, so, 
it's 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 been an adjustment, but it's it's been it's it's been a good one, you know. And our children, I think Amy said this at her confirmation proceedings. Every one of those kids, if they if they've asked who their favorite sibling is, they say Benjamin. And our son JP, the son adopted from Haiti, just the other day, someone asked him, you know, when you're having a hard day, you know, what makes you happy? How do you get through that? And he said, honestly, seeing Benjamin is what makes me happy, and that that cheers me up. And so it's it's really been a blessing to our family. It's not a blessing that. Uh, we would have necessarily thought would be a blessing. And it's not a situation. I think when we went into it, we would have asked for or wished for, but, um, you know, I think the Lord has blessed us and the other kids have embraced him and we've just tried to love him up. And, you know, everybody's at all different places and you accept where they are. Um, and at the end of the day, I'm sure there'll be lots more struggles ahead. I mean, we have had to slow the train down. We need babysitters in ways we didn't used to. Uh, but at the end of the day, he's made our family richer and I'm grateful for him. Yeah, really great stuff, Jesse. And I was just going to get to that right there because I have four kids myself. And a lot of times when I tell people I got four kids, they look at me like I got four heads, you know? So I can only imagine uh, with a family of nine, it's it's got to be a lot to manage. And you say you, you have babysitters, you got both parents are working full time. Uh, how do you kind of navigate, you know, your lifestyle with a family of nine? And I, one thing that's important with my kids, I have four, is I know how important one-on-one time is with them. So I try to make it a point, you know, whether I'm going to the grocery store, to the bodega, whatever it may be, that I bring a different kid with me each time so they even if it's 10 minutes they get that one-on-one time how do you guys kind of manage a you know a, a family as large as yours and make sure each kid kind of feels included in that one-on-one time All right, dads, if you're looking for a great night's sleep you have got to get a my pillow guaranteed the most comfortable pillow you'll ever own There's a reason why my pillows are flying off the shelf, and that's because it is a first-class product that's made right here in the United States of America. And the comfort doesn't stop with just the MyPillow. Check out MyPillow.com, and you'll see a whole wide variety of comfortable products, such as towel sets, Giza Dream Sheets, mattress toppers, MyPillow bathrobes, pajama sets, and so much more. You guys have heard my interview with First Class Father and MyPillow founder Mike Lindell right here on the podcast. And right now, First Class Fatherhood listeners can save up to 66% off their orders. That's right, up to 66% off on MyPillow.com by using the promo code FATHERHOOD. Or simply call 1-800-875-0219 and your savings will be instantly applied. Don't go another night without a MyPillow. Visit MyPillow.com and use the promo code FATHERHOOD or call 1-800-875-0219 and save up to 66% off your order on MyPillow. One thing that's important with my kids, I have four, is I know how important one-on-one time is with them. So I try to make it a point, you know, whether I'm going to the grocery store, to the bodega, whatever it may be, that I bring a different kid with me each time. So they, even if it's 10 minutes, they get that one-on-one time. How do you guys kind of manage, a, you know, a, a family as large as yours and make sure each kid kind of feels included in that one-on-one time? Yeah, that's a great question, Alec. And it's, um, there's seasons in life when it looks different. Um, when Amy was a professor, every semester we would talk about, does it make sense for you to keep teaching? Does it make sense for me to keep practicing? Should one of us start staying home? But we, we never hit the point where we felt like our kids weren't getting what they needed. And if we felt like they weren't getting what they needed, we would have, one of us would have quit the job immediately. Um, so we, we have had been blessed with great babysitters, uh, both family and non-family. We've also had the good fortune of living in a small town like South Bend is where Basically, everywhere we go is within about a mile and a half. The schools, the pediatrician, my office, Amy's office, 
a grocery store, church. Um, so that has made it easier to, to do it in a place like this. But, you know, it takes a lot of communication at the beginning of each week. We look at our Google calendar, which has, you know, 10 different colors going on and multiple blocks colored in at the same time um, and figure out who's going to do what. Generally, I do teeth. So I do dentists and orthodontists. Amy does the girls appointments. Usually I do the boys appointments. We just, you know, we divide it up and you sacrifice at work. Um, I mean, that sounds funny to say when Amy's obviously not, uh, uh, she's in the position that she's in. But, you know, we've both at different points probably could have achieved more or done more or build more time or gotten more clients or what have you or published more. But, you know, family comes first. And as you mentioned, Alec, with, you know, trying to find the time, the 10 minutes at least, I try to spend, make sure I at least have a conversation one-on-one with each child each day um, and, you know, just what's going on, how is school Especially, and we have family dinner every night. So every night at six o'clock, unless the kids at sport, we have dinner together. And everybody says how their day was, and everybody knows that's kind of where we connect. And even the kids who might be in different life situations or different ages, or might not be getting along as well right then, you know, they have to be around the table across from their brother or sister. So the, the family dinner has really been an important thing for us too. Even if there's not as much chances during a particular day for one-on-one interaction. At least then we can all uh, all be together for a half hour, 45 minutes. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm right there with you. We're six o'clock every night, like clockwork. We eat together. We pray together before dinner. And it's it's my favorite part of the day. I love it. I, I usually cook dinner every night. And it's it's the most fun that I have during the day is getting a chance to sit down with the family uh, that's great. Uh, and have a meal. The phones go away. Technology is gone. And it's just us at the table. So I, I definitely appreciate that myself. And what about as far as discipline goes, uh, uh, Jesse, what type of disciplinarian are you as a dad? And is that different than a discipline style you grew up with? You know, I, I try to have a light touch. Um, I think that, you know, a, a stern word often will go farther than a different kind of correction. Um, I had an embarrassing moment not too too long ago where I was correcting one of my children. And uh, as I was walking away, I heard that child say to their sibling, he wasn't even that mad. He didn't even say, damn it. I was like, oh, man, I, uh, I got to watch my, my, my language around him. But, um, you know, as they get older, Technology is pretty low-hanging fruit for a punishment. You know, if you talk back, if you break a curfew, you know, we'll, we'll take your phone. And no teenager, we try to hold off as long as we can on giving our kids phones, but once they get them, they know that we can take them back. So that, uh, that has proven to be a, 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 probably our most effective source of punishment. But, you know, I, I have found as we've had more kids, the younger ones kind of know the standard from the older kids. And so sometimes our younger kids have taken less discipline than our older children because sort of the pattern has been set and expectations have been set. So, you know, I think when you add, when you get to a family as big as ours are, it's not like every child is as big of a change as the first or second were, you know, they kind of, they, they, they enter something that is already ongoing and existing as opposed to sort of having to recreate everything each time you have a child. Um, so I don't know what they would say about the discipline, but, uh, I think that I think we we try to have uh, as light of a touch as we can. But that said, you know, they have to know that there's an order and that their parents are in charge and there's certain things they can and can't say and they can and can't do. Um, you know, so I think there have to be clear consequences. And I think that makes them that that makes them happier because then they know if they're doing something that isn't a bad thing that, you know, there's nothing wrong with doing it because our standards and our expectations are clear. 
Yeah, very well said. And then, as we mentioned here, you know, your wife became a Supreme Court justice. There's only nine of them in the country for now anyway, but it's an uh, awesome position to, to get for your wife and obviously thrust you guys into the national spotlight. And some of the coverage uh, was was so horrific to see. And I can only imagine being a dad, seeing stuff being reported or being written about your family. How did you guys kind of handle it with your kids? Did you kind of keep them away from media at that time? How did they respond to all the criticism, sometimes harsh, that was coming uh, straight ahead at your family during that time? You know, the biggest thing we did was to tell our girls who have uh, who have technology stay off social media because that's where you're going to get the anonymous uh, complaints and the people attacking you. Um, you're going to get it other places, too. But, you know, stay off social media. And, and they did for the most part. And I think that really helped keep some sanity. You know, we tried to be really clear with them that this is, you know, mom and different kids understood it depending on their different ages, more or less. But, you know, mom is in this position where she's now a public figure and there's going to be people who support her and people who are oppose her. And that's the way our democracy works. And there's nothing wrong with supporting her and there's nothing wrong with opposing her. But um, we have to be firm in the knowledge of who we are. And, you know, we, you don't want, you don't want to be shaped or influenced by what people you don't know say. You want to be shaped or influenced by the people who you respect and the people who are close to you. So we tried to be really, really clear with them about why we were doing this. We thought it was what we were supposed to do, what might come from it, how it might change their lives, but that no matter what, we would always be there for them. We would always be with them. And I think they, they got some security from that, knowing that this is a big life change, but you know, our nuclear family is not going to change and the, the love and the relationships aren't going to change no matter what comes from the outside. Um, so I'm sure maybe someday they'll be on a podcast in 20 years and be saying that it was, uh, you know, it was the worst time of their lives or it was so disruptive or something like that. But as I look at it right now, I think I think they're all in pretty good places. And I think that we also had the good fortune of having just a lot of support from from very close knit family and friends. So they were they were able to be kind of cocooned from from some of the worst of things. And I think that as they get older and read everything that was written and said, they might be surprised, like, oh, I didn't know that was out there because I felt like that was really a, I felt pretty safe and protected during that time. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. Yeah, and you guys really handled the whole situation with class, I thought, and, and uh your wife just really was so impressive during the hearings. It was incredible to find any criticism to come her way because she was just so impressive during that whole process. So uh, I thought she handled it with class the whole way through. And I think we're blessed to have her as a Supreme Court justice. So and then I want to ask you, my youngest is my only girl. She's six now. So I'm already I'm not in any hurry to get to her to hit those those stages where the dating scene comes into place. You're already there right now. So how, how have you kind of handled or what kind of advice have you given your girls here or the kids that are old enough? to start hitting that dating scene yeah that's a scary one alec obviously every dad will say the same thing maybe maybe especially with daughters but with sons too we have always tried to be really really open frank and explicit with them about here's the pros and the cons of dating here's what's here's what can come here's the good things that can come here's the bad things that can come Here's some heartbreak you can have if you get emotionally involved before you're ready to be emotionally involved, before you're in a, you have a maturity level to be emotionally involved. And we, uh, we have really frank conversations around the dinner table, even with the younger kids, about, about how, how you pick who you want to date. Is that somebody who you could see being with as a life partner? Is, is that the kind of person you'd be embarrassed to bring home? Is that, uh, is that someone who you think, if you want to be married, 
you could have as good a relationship with as the people you respect who you see who are married, like mom and dad or your aunts and uncles or, you know, parents of other kids who you respect. Um, and, and to try to have them have the long view so that before they get too emotionally connected with somebody, they've made the decision that that's somebody I want to be emotionally involved with. Um, because, you know, you can just fall into relationships because of convenience or because, you know, you think someone's cute or someone's in your class or what have you. And, you know, that's, that's no way to, to, I mean, I feel like if, if they go through their dating life like that, there's just going to be a lot of turmoil, a lot of upheaval, and maybe they'll hit it lucky and one of those boys or girls will be the right one for them. But I feel like if, if we can teach them to be a little more deliberate about who they choose to spend their emotional energy on and their emotional time on, that uh, then maybe it'll go a little smoother for them than it would otherwise. So, you know, look, our oldest is only 19, so it's all uh, the story is yet to be written. But at least ideally, that's kind of kind of the way I've been thinking about it. Yeah, I'm kind of bracing myself for impact with that, too. So uh, I guess prayer is about the best thing I can offer. I mean, unfortunately, we know they have to go through experiences. They have to learn for themselves no matter how many times we tell them. But, um, you know, just just trying to callous my mind for for, for the days ahead with that. So um, last thing I want to hit you with here, Jesse, I don't want to keep you any longer. I love to ask all the dads that I get on the podcast, what type of advice do you have for that new dad or for that about to be father who's out there listening? You know, I have found that I've gotten into trouble when I second guess what I'm doing by what the perfect dad would do or what the best dad would do. And, you know, I'm not sure there is a perfect dad. I'm not sure there is a best dad. I mean, I think for me, it's if I don't try to hold myself to some external standard and I get myself down about how I handle a particular situation, but it's just like, you know, I'm going to take the tools and abilities that I have and use that to be the best dad I can and, I'm going to give everything I can, but I can't give something I don't have. You know, there's there's resources I don't have. There's time I don't have. There's experiences I don't have. I can't teach my kid to be a great golfer because I'm not a good golfer. But but that's okay. You know, you give them what you have. Um, and that that's really helped me be kind of peaceful with with I'm just doing the best I can with the tools the Lord has given me, and that's going to have to be enough. Um, so So that's one thing. And I think also... I mean, this is probably so cliche to say, but man, it's all about the example. It's not about what you say. It's about what you do. It's about how you live your life. And who knows when, you know, your child will remember something that you said or did 10 years ago that at the time didn't make an impact. But, you know, as a 25 year old, they remember, oh, I know how dad handled this situation. I know how mom handled that situation. Um, So I just think the example of how you live your life, how you love their mother, um, how you care for them is, is so much more important than, you know, all the advice. We're always talking at them. But, you know, I think it's I think it's the doing that really that really probably makes a longer term impact. Yeah, very well said. I love the message. This has been an honor for me. I got to say, Jesse Barrett, you are a first class father all the way. And thank you so much for giving me a few minutes of your time here on First Class Fatherhood. Thanks, Alec. I really appreciate the service you do through the podcast. And thanks for having me on. Back to wrap things up here on First Class Fatherhood. i got to give a special thank you once again to Jesse Barrett for giving me a few minutes of his time here. That was such an honor. Please hit me up on Twitter, guys, or drop me that DM on Instagram. Let me know what you thought about today's episode. I always love to read your feedback. Make sure you're following me on Instagram at Alec underscore Lace for all the upcoming guest announcements. i got some exciting ones that I'll be dropping on you guys soon, including my upcoming exclusive interview with Matt Roloff. I had the honor of spending a few days with Matt Roloff over at the Roloff Farms there in Oregon. I had a great time. Him and Karen couldn't have been nicer to me. 
Uh, I can't wait to drop this exclusive interview on you guys. It will be available next week, right before the season premiere of Little People, Big World. All right, so look out for that one and so many other great interviews to come your way soon. That's all I got for you guys today. I'm Alec Lace. Thank you for listening to First Class Fatherhood. And please remember, guys, we are not babysitters. We are fathers. And we're not just fathers. We are first class fathers. Sometimes